Welcome to episode number 32 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan DeFrancesco, and I am the deputy editor of Cellside Technology, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, U.S. editor, Anthony Malikian. Good to be back. So we have a guest, as you probably have seen on the title, we have a guest this week. His name is Edward Woodford. He's the co-founder and CEO of Seed Commodities Exchange, which was just recently on Tuesday received registration from the CFTC to operate as a CEF. Uh, so we're going to include that. And Anthony and I afterwards are going to talk just about the status of CEFs, the struggles they're having, um, the fragmentation of the market, just overall, just CEFs overall. Uh, before we get into that, we have an event coming up in Chicago. So, Anthony, how about you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I'll be there. So, if you're in Chicago, um, you know, make some time to see me. Um, we're going to be at the what is it, the Mid uh, Mid America Club uh, place. We've held this event now for a couple years in a row. Right on the top floor, beautiful views of Chicago. Um, but yeah, it should be a good event. Uh, we really try and tailor it into uh, things that. You know that Chicago prop trading shops and you know just some of the large managers out there, uh, what they're interested in. Um, obviously, we'll be talking about um, blockchain and stuff like that, but also included, uh, we'll have uh, some really good discussions about machine learning and how they can be used in uh, trading strategies. Uh, Blair Hole uh, is coming back, and he's a bit of a legend, uh, high sp- uh, HFT, high-frequency trader, um, who's really tapped into the power of artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning. So uh, he should give a very good presentation um, in the morning. Uh, we got a good keynote for the morning, the C-level roundtable. So it's going to be good stuff. If you're in Chicago um, and you are an end user, it's free to attend. You can reach out to me, and I can direct you as to how to get registered for it. Um, I'm sure that there are also still, if you're a vendor or something like that, and you're based in Chicago and you want to get a part of it, um, again, you can reach out to me for that and I can direct you to the appropriate sales and events people. Um, but yeah, should be a good event and hope to see you there. And as someone that went to, uh, the event last year really was great. Blair was fantastic with his presentation early on in the morning. And, uh, at the end of the day, if Anthony's going to go all the way out to Chicago, you know, it's going to be good because he wouldn't want to go all the way out there if it wasn't going to be a good, uh, you know, event. good bars out there too, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so Anthony and I are going to talk in a little bit, but first, uh, why don't you listen in? I spoke with Edward Woodford, again, the co-founder and CEO of Seed Commodities Exchange, the newest CEF. So listen in. All right. And I'm joined now by Edward Woodford, the co-founder and CEO of Seed Commodities Exchange, which is the newest swap execution facility, which was just granted uh, registration by the CFTC. Edward, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah. So I think to start, you know, what would be best is maybe if you could give, just give us an overall overview of kind of the origins and just the general view of uh, what Seed Commodities, Commodities Exchange or Seed CX is all about. Yeah. Um, so um, sort of the genesis story is um, my co-founder and I, um, we were doing our grad studies um, at MIT and we were focused on emerging agriculture and, um, you know, started to look at um, new emerging markets um, globally and started to see that there was some potential here. And we never thought that um, we would necessarily spin it out to a business. Um, with the great thing about academic research is that you can write a very long piece and um, really not say very much or have sort of the next steps. Um, but we started to get a lot of support from people who really liked what we were doing. 
and they appreciated that things like industrial hemp and other emerging commodities, the larger exchanges weren't necessarily focused on. And so that they sort of encouraged us to go forward. Um, we um, ra raised some money from a, a number of um, investors, and then we sort of built up a team here in Chicago and obviously uh, got our regulatory approval um, just this week. Absolutely. Now, I know from the release that your first offering is going to be industry hemp derivatives. So just from someone with a lack of deep knowledge of the emerging agricultural space, I hear hemp. And the first thing I kind of think of is, OK, that's kind of like marijuana, but it's not like marijuana. I know there's I know they're different, but I'm sure there's a lot of myths and people don't have the full understanding. But like I said, uh, someone that doesn't understand you hear hemp, you think marijuana. And I think Woody Harrelson, because I know he's a big supporter of hemp. Those those are my <laughs> the ugly American assumptions of hemp. Give our listeners kind of a, a real description of of what hemp is and, and kind of it, how it differentiates from marijuana and why it's kind of a, a completely different product. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a large part of our job has been to educate people on what the differences are. And um, it's pretty incredible when you go down to see hemp fields. I mean, you do initially, when you first see them, it's a little bit, um, you know, arresting, um, quite, quite grabbing. But the more you see, you, it, you, you desensitize yourself to it and you've got farmers who are growing corn and tobacco and then they're talking to you about their hemp farm. Um, Hemp is defined by the federal um, government as having less than 0.3% THC, and THC is the psychoactive component of cannabis. And so essentially, um, industrial hemp um, will not get you high. And that's the main difference. It's a um, very, very low um, sort of negligible amount of um, THC in the plant. And hemp is used in a variety of sources, and we sort of break it down into three main verticals. There's the seed, which is much like soybeans in the sense that it can be crushed into meal and oil. You've got the fiber, and the fiber has two components, and that's used in sort of um, composite plastics um, and in a variety of industrial uses in clothes and ropes, which is sort of the historical um, uses. And then you've got this third sort of health benefit um, oil, which is... Um, extracted from the flower and um, the, the whole plant, and that's priced on the uh, percentage of CBD. And so these are the three components of industrial hemp, and that's obviously very different um, to, to marijuana in, in the uses. Um, and that, that's sort of that, that's the, that, that, that's the difference. It's just that it's a completely different plant. One is federally legal, and one is obviously federally illegal. So yeah, what in terms of the the regulations and the laws around that? So is hemp hemp is completely federally legal? Because I know in in years past, or I, I guess maybe there's a misunderstanding on my part. It's not a state to state thing. Yeah. It's completely federal federally regulated now. Yeah. So the the law is um, relatively complex, and there's sort of lots of um, weird quirks, and we can sort of go into them at a, sort of a global level. There's lots of weird supply chain quirks because of the regulation. Um, but essentially, um, hemp has been imported into the United States for about 15 to 20 years. And um, the U.S. is actually the largest importer of industrial hemp globally. Yet American farmers could not grow industrial hemp until the 2014 Farm Bill Act. And what the 2014 Farm Bill Act is, is that it for the first time specified hemp as being cannabis with less than 0.3% THC. And the federal government said that this is federally legal to grow industrial hemp, provided that the state in which it is grown has established the necessary infrastructure um, and regulation to ensure that what is being grown has less than 0.3% THC. 
And today, over 30 states have passed necessary regulatory um, structures um, in order for hemp to be grown in those states. Um, and so it is legal at a federal level, um, provided that um, the state agricultural department has implemented the necessary um, licensing um, procedures and testing procedures to ensure that the um, hemp grown it meets the requirements set by the federal law. So, for example, what that means um, is that, for example, you, Dan, if, if you were to start growing hemp um, with less, essentially cannabis with less than 0.3% THC, that would not be federally legal. However, a farmer who applied, um, got the license um, to be able to grow and was growing hundreds of acres of this stuff, um, that would be federally legal, even though the plant is identical. You are growing it in your backyard because you want the seeds, um, and the farmer is also growing it in, 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 in his fields for the seeds, but the difference is, is that they are licensed um, and they um, have the agriculture department come and test uh, for the THC levels to ensure that it is below the 0.3% um, mark set by the federal government. So it's this sort of complex overlay of um, different laws, which makes it very complex and also difficult to explain. And, you know, there's, there's weird quirks. So, for example, um, in Australia, for example, um, you cannot sell industrial hemp for human consumption. So what happened was Australia was sending all of its industrial hemp to the United States where it was illegal for many years to not be able to grow industrial hemp in the United States. So you had this very weird quirk, and that started to lift and change. And um, probably in the next um, legislative cycle, um, they will actually pass Industrial Hemp Act, which will completely remove um, um, any um, complications around what industrial hemp is. And the complication largely lies because the Controlled Substance Act is very, very broad. And so what the 2014 Fargo Act is, it essentially carved out um, industrial hemp provided it is grown in these conditions um, to be federally legal. Okay. Now, the complexity of those regulations, how does that impact the trading aspect of it? Because I know I've, I've, you know, I've seen stories or I've spoken to people regarding marijuana exchanges, you know, because of its legality in certain states, but the fact that it's not federally, at least in the United States, it's not federally uh, legal. It, it complicates things around trading futures and commodities of marijuana. Mm -hmm. On the hemp side, because like you said, it is federally legal, but because of the complexities of it, how does that affect, affect now? the trading of these hemp derivatives yeah so um, it, it's interesting you mentioned mentioned that um, what the um, Commodities Exchange Act states is that um, you cannot create futures and options or any derivatives on anything which is federally um, illegal or which has been specified as being impossible um, to create um, futures on so the weird quirk in the United States is that it is illegal to create onion futures. Um, the CME, us, we cannot create futures or options on onions because of the 1958 Onions Futures Act. <laughs> we also cannot create futures on movie theater receipts. Those are illegal. And in the same way, um, marijuana futures are illegal. And the reason why is because the federal government, um, in particular the CFTC, has exclusive jurisdiction over commodities trading in the United States. Anything which is federally legal, um, they cannot regulate. So that's why um, trading on those products, whether it be marijuana or onions or whatever it is, um, you cannot create futures on. Um, what we, we, we obviously aren't 
um, creating products and things which are federally illegal. Um, industrial hemp um, has been federally legal to import for many, many years, and now we can also create um, products on domestically grown um, industrial hemp. Um, so there is very little um, complexity from a legal standpoint. There is obviously an initial um, reticence to engage at, sometimes with things that people initially have an instinctive response to. Um, what is industrial hemp? But once you explain it and you take people down to these farms in Kentucky, Tennessee, um, there really is sort of a dramatic shift in people's perceptions about what this is. And I mean, you go down to any store now, you go to Whole Foods, you can see whole um, shelves full of hemp seeds. If you look at BMW cars or Tesla vehicles, they now use hemp in their vehicles. Um, so it's actually, you see hemp all the time, actually, in America um, day to day. Mm-hmm. Well, so that gets me to my next question in terms of now this, this, the registration came through on Tuesday. You guys are now the 23rd fully registered CFTC CEF. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, the CEF space has been interesting over the past few years. A lot of people say there's mm-hmm. too many CEFs. There's been some – the biggest kind of growing theme is that the, the ones that got in on the ground floor have been all right, but the, some of the CEFs have mm-hmm. had a tough time that have come in later. You know, Terror Exchange, Ledger X, Javelin, they, mm-hmm. they've, they've struggled yeah. and – what is specific about your business model, about CCX's business model, that kind of separates it? Why you think now engaging in this uphill battle, it will be a success? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, doing anything in the financial space as a smaller player is, is inherently difficult. Um, and, you know, you, you kind of mentioned other names, and it's interesting um, that I think two weeks ago, Javelin actually got purchased by BATS. Um, so there is um, a value to the um, Ceph platform in itself. I think that the main difficulty that Cephs have faced is um, that they're obviously different to, um, because you can only trade swaps and options, um, it's different. And so these things are treated um, from a margining perspective in a very different way. Um, the, um, the amount of capital that you have to tie up in margin if these products are cleared um, is much more difficult. Um, for example, as well, um, to trade on the CEF, you have to be something called an eligible contract participant. Um, so you have to meet certain financial um, things that you need to meet. I think um, the, the, the thing that differentiates us is that we are creating products which are completely new. Um, obviously, interest rate swaps um, or currency there's a lot of platforms offering these kinds of things. And so it's kind of a race to the bottom in terms of fees. Um, but also um, what traders look for is um, more importantly than fees is the liquidity. And so people will congregate around the, the platforms which have the most liquidity rather than go to somewhere else. If the bid ask spread is very wide, it doesn't matter if your fee is um, very, very low compared to someone else because um, what you want is that liquidity to be able to get out of the position if you need to. I mean, obviously, you don't want to be um, having a, a, a large spread. Um, so I think the, the main difference is um, we, we offer completely new products. Um, our customer base um, is interested in this model. Um, however, in saying that, we are pushing towards um, going down um, the DCM route as well. Um, so we will be applying um, in the next few months um, to become a fully-fledged um, exchange, which will offer 
um, a broader customer base for us, but also will allow us to um, offer futures as well as uh, forwards and options that we are currently um, offering. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. It's actually something I mentioned in my column on Wednesday where I touched on kind of mm-hmm. three different trading venues that I thought were doing interesting things, NASDAQ mm-hmm. Futures, IEX, and CTX. Mm-hmm. And I, that was the biggest point I kind of took away from your registration was the fact that you guys are offering a new product. It's something different. It's one thing to mm-hmm. come into the Ceph world and try to do something that the established players have been doing for a while, but you're bringing a new product mm-hmm. into the area. To that point, I know like you said, it's industry hemp derivatives as it stands now. I know it's still early days. Are there plans to offer new products? What's the kind of the, the timetable going forward in terms of how you want to, the scalability of growing out the platform in, in offerings potentially? Yeah. Um, so creating new products um, is inherently difficult. And anybody who is in product development or in exchanges will tell you that. Um, I think if you sort of study it and you, and, you, and, you, and you read about it, it really is just a series of epitaphs about, um, of, of products. Um, so what you really need to look for is a, a number of features, um, but there is no sort of magic source of recipe for success in terms of creating new products. Um, so we always approach things with a um, very strong sense of pragmatism. And I was actually once told that the difference between a cynic um, and a skeptic is that a cynic believes that everything um, is impossible, but a skeptic is just um, has been weathered by experience. And I think we approach every new product idea as being skeptical, but at the same time believing that we can do it. Um, so we have looked at new product ideas. Something that we um, do publicly talk about is, for example, organic products. Um, so organic and non-GMOs are a growing part of the American agricultural space, um, but if you want to hedge, it's actually very difficult because the cross-correlation um, with their conventional counterparts, i.e. if you were to take the price of organic corn and compare that um, in a time series against conventional corn, um, the correlation, I think, um, that we worked out um, is about 50, 0.55. Um, so it's pretty low. Um, so we're kind of looking at these spaces which are pre-inflection point. We define seed commodities as those which are um, ab- about to um, grow rep- very rapidly and have sort of a track record of this um, due to regulatory shifts um, such as hemp or because of market restructurings, i.e. something like organics where there is an increasing push towards um, organic and um, sustainably grown um, products. Um, so we are looking towards new products. The interesting thing about um, our business and all exchanges is that you have very high fixed costs. Um, but then the marginal cost of introducing new products is actually very, very low. So you can actually continue to innovate and push forward uh, in creating new products. Um, then the question, logical next question is, okay, so why don't the other exchanges um, look to create new products? I mean, they, they do look to create new products, but um, when you compare um, the value of agricultural products compared to, say, financial products, um, they're, much lower, they're much lower down in the priority list just because of the sheer volumes traded. And then there really aren't many agricultural products traded out there. Um, that The focus has been typically on corn um, and soybeans um, and wheat. And so we are pushing um, towards creating new products which fit within our thesis of um, dramatic market restructurings or um, regulatory shifts or both combined to create sort of a market that we think 
um, is exciting and needs the risk mitigation tools that we offer. Sure. So going going forward now, what can we expect from CCX in terms of kind of the next big steps that need to be be made now that you've received full registration from the CFTC as a SEF? Yeah. So our, our next step is obviously um, to onboard customers. Um, we've been doing so in a relatively um, sort of light manner. Um, it's now stepping that up. Um, so onboarding people. Um, we also um, are not cleared products initially, um, so it's an uncleared um, product. So you need to um, facilitate credit agreements between um, different traders. And um, then the next step for us is obviously, like I mentioned, we, we do want to move towards um, a fully fledged exchange model. Um, so our next big step, which we'll be announcing um, hopefully in the next month, will be a clearinghouse agreement and our submission of our DCM um, application. Um, what we really need to do is get liquidity on our platform, um, and um, that, that is what we need to show, is um, increasing um, interest in our products, and liquidity begets liquidity ultimately. Um, if you look at developed products, hedges actually form less than 1% of the total traded volume in most products, um, what attracts um, liquidity providers or speculators is ultimately um, liquidity. And so you really get this sort of exponential growth function. Um, so that's really what we need to do is get to that initial point where we hit the inflection with our um, volumes, and then that should hopefully um, become a little bit more um, sell, uh, sort of a bit more circular and increase in our liquidity from there on. Well, Edward, it's definitely interesting stuff, and, and we appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us and kind of give us an, an overview and, you know, a better education on hemp. So uh, so thank you so much for, for taking the time and uh, chatting with us today. No, thanks for having me, and um, really interesting piece the other day. Um, it, it was really um, flattering to be sort of um, compared to um, the, the folks at IEX and NASDAQ. Um, they're doing um, some really, really interesting things on their end. Um, so um, I'm looking forward to following up more of what you write about them as well. Yeah, no, I think, like I said, there's a lot of parallels between the three and, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting and it's three exchanges, you know, specifically IEX and, and you guys and doing mm -hmm. things different outside of the norm to try to reach success. So, but once again, it's uh, Edward Woodford, yeah. the co-founder and CEO of uh, Seed Commodities Exchange. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, so here's Anthony and I again talking now just about overall the status of uh, CEFs and just kind of where the the space is in general. Um, I guess, well, just to start to recap, you know, I thought, you know, Edward was did a great job of kind of explaining the nuances of the regulations around hemp. Um, you know, I don't know about you, Anthony, but for me, when I think of hemp, I just think, oh, that's kind of like weed but not really weed and i think of like i said i think of woody harrelson yeah woody harrelson is uh the first thing that pops into my mind that and hippies basically hippie clothes uh, yeah those are all things but uh i think you know edward did a good job of describing you know one thing that i didn't know was that it is federally uh legal it's not illegal um and then state by state it's you know in terms of farmers growing it um, but it's more of, and I'm not going to get into the complete nuance like you just heard, you know, Edward did a great job explaining it, but around, uh, you know, 
each state and then it's not a matter of just anyone can grow it it's specific farmers and and whatnot but yeah i think you know the biggest thing that we talked about it's something that you brought up before the the interview you know you talked to me about was you know the status of the ceph space in general who is succeeding who is failing and really the struggles of these new cephs that are coming and getting registered and having a tough time getting off the ground as someone that's done a lot of writing in that space, what's your perspective on how the space is and how it's evolved over the past few years? Well, I guess, so by last count, uh, we have 27 uh, CEPHs that have registered. Some have withdrawn, um, but 27 CEPHs overall that have registered uh, with the uh, CFTC. Um, 10 are essentially dead or have kind of little traction right now. Um, that doesn't mean that, that can't change for the future for those that haven't uh, withdrawn their their registration. But I think you know, just kind of take a, a little bit of a quick look. Um, you know, you look at some of the bigger incumbents that are having some success. Uh, Bloomberg, you know, but there it makes sense. You know, it's ten dollars to trade, but you've already paid five, seven thousand dollars, whatever it is, to have a terminal there. So that they can kind of go ten dollar trade. You know, makes it you know. Uh, uh, economical uh, for firms. Uh, TradeWeb, you know, owned by a consortium of dealers. So if you trade on TradeWeb, you know, you kind of get a taste of this dealer community as well. Um, then you have the inner dealer brokers, you know, like ICAP, um, BGC, which had bought uh, recently GFI, uh, Tullet, and Tradition. Um, you've used them for years, and that relationship is built out. So again, makes sense why you're going to be using them. And then, of course, you have like a specialist like uh, Market Access. Um, you know, it's the biggest platform for trading corporate bonds. If you buy a corporate bond, and you also get the credit default swap, you know, through kind of one place, makes sense there. And then you have kind of those unique firms that really built out uh, their technology. Um, so you look at Truex, I think, is the leader with this one, uh, with uh, led by uh, Sunil Harani. But they made something really unique by from what I understand anyway, um, where they kind of built out the pro- post-trade infrastructure. And then most importantly, their compression technique um, has kind of helped them establish, you know, create some uniqueness around themselves. Then, of course, you have kind of the FX crowd. Uh, Thomson Reuters had some success, but then um, some others have struggled. But you have uh, companies like 360 Trading, FX All, SwapX, NFX, GTX. Uh, these guys are some of these guys are struggling because they're kind of waiting for non-deliverable forwards uh, NDFs uh, to be mandated to clear, and that might not happen anytime soon um, from some of just the people I've been speaking with. Um, I'm by no means an expert on that. And then you kind of have these clearing houses, you know, you have ICE, CME, um, limited traction, uh, from what I understand. Uh, essentially, they bolted, you know, an execution piece onto their offering. But um, it sounds like from some of the things that we've seen that um, they're kind of, especially with CME, that they kind of have this uh, product, uh, this offering, just in case you're going to need it in the future. Um, actually, if you want a really good, we'll link to it, but if you want a really good kind of breakdown of the Ceph marketplace, uh, Claris Financial Technology, which uh, a consultancy, uh, Todd Skorecki, uh, he put out an excellent roundup on the Ceph market back in January. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of, it's, it's interesting, kind of shows you the marketplace. But part of that is, you know, let's look at some of these startups that came out. You know, you have Javelin. Um, 
you know, they were pure Seth along with uh, Tarek Exchange. Javelin, you know, gets bought by Bats after failing to generate much interest. Tarek Exchange has never gone off the ground as a series of lawsuits and stuff like that. Um, you know, Ledger X, you know, they're, they're looking to get into the uh, Bitcoin crowd, you know, I guess similar to what, you know, Seed is doing with hemp. Um, and you got a couple others kind of in that space. So it seems like it's top heavy right now. The, the Ceph marketplace. I'm not sure why other entrants would look to get into it right now. Um, I guess, you know, for what Seed's saying, um, for what um, uh, Edward is saying, it makes sense that, okay, they are just focusing in on one tailored product, but then doesn't, I, I can't help but wonder then, you know, can, you know, other, if it's so small a niche, can you really differentiate yourself enough to make a true business model using the Ceph? I wouldn't know, but I guess that's what they're going to have to prove for the future. Yeah, I think their perspective is that it's not something that some of the more established players are interested in getting involved in because the reward for them isn't high enough. You know, they're making enough money on already these financial products that they're putting out and and trading that it's not, you know, to 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 do the legwork behind setting up, you know, industry hemp derivatives is not is not really worth it for them. But for a small shop like them, for them to set this up and, and get this off the ground, they can kind of build out their own little niche in the in the market. Do I do they think that they're going to be the biggest chef in the space? I don't think so. I think, you know, I think Edward would tell you that. Um, But I think that they can make a nice little business out of doing this and then kind of growing into other potentially um, these emerging agricultural area. I think the biggest thing you kind of went through the list is that if you weren't there to start, if you don't have that relationship, then you really need something to differentiate yourself. If you're just going to step into the Steph space and say, hey, we want to be a part of this, too. It's never going to work. It's it's never going to happen. And that's why I, that's what I think, you know, and Edward did explain this. That's where I think the, the differentiation is for CX. Will it work? Only time will tell. We'll see. But And I'll say that uh, so uh, a blogger and a research analyst stuff, uh, John Lothian, uh, he uh, put out a kind of a quick little roundup on um, on the on the seed announcement that's coming to Seth. Um and so I learned some things uh, by reading his report here, but I this is this might be some news for you as well. Uh, industrial hemp by law has less than 0.3 percent THC versus more than 10 percent for today's marijuana. Um, so you can't even really get much of a buzz off of it. Um, hemp can be woven into durable mildew resistant fiber, and an acre of hemp can produce as much fiber as two to three acres of cotton. Hemp oil, as well, has a number of industrial uses and is rich in protein and vitamin B. So, the more you know. Yeah, I mean, for, and this is me going off the rails a little bit, but I believe I remember hearing that essentially what it came down to was there were two, I don't know the names of them, but there were two big wigs way back when who one had hemp and one basically had cotton and basically the guy that had cotton won and then he decided well we're going to make hemp legal because this is could be potentially outlast my cotton industry so don't even let them get off the ground but edward said i mean whole foods he mentioned uses it bmw is using it in their cars so it's a it's a reliable it's not weed like that that's i think the biggest takeaway and he said that's a big thing to kind of because you go to these farms and you look at the plant and it looks like marijuana and you think oh wow that's weed but like you said you can't smoke it you can't get high from it 
Um, but, you know, uh, that's an interesting point, and, you know, I, I did mention this, and this area has a little bit more struggles. Probably about uh, six months ago, uh, I wrote a story, I wrote a column about how, um, off a Bloomberg story, about how some Wall Street vets are interested in doing a weed exchange, and the, the weed was American X uh, Corp. This, I don't want to compare the two because completely different weed obviously is not federally uh, legal. So there's a bunch of issues in terms of trading and whatnot on a commodities exchange. But these type of areas, these emerging markets are interested because eventually it seems it's all things are trending towards eventually it's going to be legalized. And then eventually once it is legalized, traders are going to want to trade on it. People are going to want to hedge on it. People are going to want to try to make money off it as a financial product. So it'll be really interesting to see. You know, CX seems to be getting in on the ground floor when it comes to hemp um, in terms of marijuana. And they didn't, you know, Edward didn't indicate anything in terms of an interest in getting involved in this. So I'm not saying that there's any linkage. But also on the marijuana end, that seems a few more years back. But that's another area where these emerging agricultural area um, markets, again, not something where it's going to be a massive, massive market. But there is money to be made. No doubt. Uh, so I guess to switch gears now to the non-fintech topic of the week, uh, Anthony, I know you saw a movie this I week. I did. Um, went to uh, this little movie theater in, uh, where was it? It was underneath basically the Manhattan Bridge on the Brooklyn side. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Were there any trolls down there? Or? I'm sure there were. <laughs> didn't go that, you know, didn't go sneak did around the corner. you have to pay corner. a toll? Yeah, or? exactly. <laughs> A little Always Sunny uh, <laughs> reference right there for you. Um, but a great movie. I think that if you're in technology, if you're in a space, uh, and even if you're not, if you're just inquisitive, uh, I think uh, that you might get a kick out of is uh, a new movie, a new documentary called Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World. Uh, it's a Werner Herzog film. Uh, if you know Werner Herzog, uh, Grizzly Man fame, numerous other documentaries. Um, he's a very quirky uh strange but fun kind of storyteller um he basically looks at from the birth of the internet until you know where we are today with machine learning and ai and what the future is going to hold um and he breaks it up into 10 parts you know from you know the first being just you know the dawn of you know the first machine machine to uh, connection communication um all the way through to today and you know it's got some of the dire are we going to you know to destroy the world with machines <laughs> um to well it's going to be the greatest thing ever um a wide range of ideas um people that you know need to get off the grid completely because of health reasons the radio waves are slowly killing them um and people that want just to that think that the internet's evil um, to people that, you know, the great advancements that we've made through the use of the Internet. Um, really, really good movie. Really, really interesting. Uh, me and my girlfriend went and saw it, and then, you know, we went out to a bar and had great long discussion about some of the topics brought up in it. But um, lo and behold, Reveries of the Connected World by Werner Herzog. Highly recommend it. What was the most interesting thing you took away from the from the film? Uh, well, for me, I just the... I was actually very fascinated by um, how it all kind of started because it's not something I ever really kind of looked into that much. So that was definitely interesting. But certainly where we're going with the machine learning, um, I love that topic just in general. Um, 
and you know they they had you know some really really big name guys from the field but then you also have like Elon Musk and stuff like that and him talking about some of the concerns he had uh with machine learning uh you know so it was i think that those were probably the two you know most interesting things yeah not a bad movie yeah Werner Herzog funny story about Werner Herzog i for my senior year i took foreign film because <laughs> i was just trying to get by and um one of the movies that was selected by my uh, professor was Fitzcarraldo, which any of you weren't Herzog fans will recognize. For those of you who don't know, essentially it is about a rubber baron in the nineteen mid nineteen hundreds that uh, down in South America the only rubber way to, or robber rubber rubber R U B B E R. He decides that he wants to get to this specific stronghold of rubber or whatever you use to. I, I don't know. I'm not a rubber genius but he wants to get to this specific area in the south american uh jungle and the only way to do it is go upstream of this river which is extremely difficult and destroys these boats so instead he decides that the only way to get there is by going over a mountain and then there are the native people there that he decides he's going to enlist to help him do it and long story short it doesn't work out for him now the really fascinating part is well a fun fact Mick Jagger was the lead of this movie for like a month and then he got sick from being down there and he decided I'm out and he didn't want to do it so they had to reshoot the entire beginning thing but they also made a documentary while making Fitzcarraldo called Burden of Dreams and it was about how Werner Herzog was so desperately wanted to actually film a massive ship being dragged over a mountain over a a hill that the crew had to do all these crazy things in these awful conditions to get the shots of this ship getting pulled up this side of a mountain and essentially it was a representation of what he was trying to get in Fitzcarraldo Fitzcarraldo trying to get to this rubber was the same thing uh, Werner Herzog was trying to get these shots it was really fascinating if you watch both back to back it's really interesting Um, I'm the farthest thing from a foreign film buff but uh, it was two two really interesting back to back films just to see about um, you know filmmaking and stuff and you know as an ugly american that's the second time i've used that phrase this podcast god damn it um as that phrase a lot (laughs) yeah as an an ill-informed uh viewer you know most people think of werner herzog and they think of grizzly man Mm -hmm. and they think of the end scene where he's listening to the audio of the guy getting mauled which by the way is just as awful as showing the audio because you're still playing it's it's still horrible but um this was an interesting look at kind of the genius and the madness behind filmmakers yeah that, being at the um this movie this this theater i think it's like a i think it might have been like a school or something like that for film students stuff like that so my girlfriend she works uh in the film business um and yeah she's not pretentious like many of the people that i think that you find in that industry um but plenty of the people we got in there a little bit late and so we had to split up and I was sitting right in the very front row because it was a packed house. And just the insufferable film students and stuff like that that were in there. And they're just – every single time Werner Herzog would say something, like, remotely funny, they were just, oh, what a genius. What a genius. Like, oh, my God. This is, <laughs> this is just terrible. I wish I was watching this at home. So don't watch it with a bunch of film students uh, would be my recommendation. Don't hang out with any film students. If there are any in your life, cut them out of your life and never talk to them again. If they're your son or daughter, disown them. Yeah. If they're your mother or father, cut off communications with them. I think that's valuable advice for all of our listeners. I, I think that we can definitely go with that. 
another interesting tidbit for you about ships on mountains and stuff like that. Let's hear it. Uh, there are many people that believe that if you believe in Noah's Ark, they believe that that there's a ship atop of uh, Mount Ararat that is what was Noah's Ark. Because why would there be a ship there otherwise at the top of Mount Ararat? In I'll call it Armenia. I'm gonna sound stupid here. I didn't know there's a ship on top of Mount Ararat. Yeah, I don't know anything about this. Can you quickly? Can you provide? I don't some... really. I'm not an expert okay. on. It. I just I just know about it. There's and, a ship yeah. up there, and people think that it's Noah's Ark. Yes. Is it big? I have no idea. I've never been, never seen. Wow. Well, there you go. I love, I love, a, <laughs> I love a good conspiracy theory. You knew you could roll me in, you son of a bitch. You knew you could roll me yeah. in with a good conspiracy theory. Yeah. Well, there goes my Friday because I'm just going to spend I, all day now yeah. looking up uh, theories about Noah's Ark. Uh, I guess that will we'll put a stop to it here for now. Um, next week, you know, is the week before college football, and then after that, professional football. So prepare to be inundated with a lot of hot football takes. Um, cause that's all Anthony and I really know how to talk about besides yeah. financial technology. And I don't think and we, we don't do really, that very well. No. Yeah. We don't really need to know, know how to do that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. So Anthony, you have anything else to add? That's all I got. Definitely subscribe to, uh, join the, uh, the Chicago event. Go there. It's going to be a good time. And, uh, thanks so much for listening and we'll check back in next Thursday.